0: Viewers have no shame at all. They will give away every precious little twist and
1: turn and surprise ending you've cooked up. Author John Updike. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. You know, people sometimes ask me if I ever got starstruck during the years that I was doing interviews with famous people. And yes, sometimes I did. One of those times was in early 1994, when I had the opportunity to meet and interview a true literary lion, novelist, short story writer, poet, and critic, John Updike. Now, how big a literary figure is he? Well, John Updike is one of only three writers who has ever won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction more than once. And both times that Updike won the Pulitzer, it was for a book in his Rabbit series of novels featuring Harry Rabbit Angstrom. Now, I met John Updike after he'd written an unusual novel called Brazil. So here now, from 1994, John Updike. Is this your first novel set in a
2: Brazilian jungle? My first and maybe my last. (laughs) Yes, it is. I have
0: ventured occasionally away from my... uh from my suburban turf though. I wrote a book about Africa in in the mid 70s and I'd written a few short stories with exotic locations.
2: The but, Brazilian jungle I'd read one review is not exactly the common venue for American novelists. How did, how did this come to you? I suppose that's one of the reasons
0: you're attracted to these out of the way places is that they are out of the way and not two other American novelists have been there. I think there's a lot to say about Brazil. I'm not sure I'm the one to say it but it's a large country and in some ways a portent of what the world is coming to. It's a melting pot that, uh, in which the melt t- temperature is a little higher than in this country. Uh, I've always been kind of fascinated ever since the Carmen Miranda days in the 40s, uh, before your time. But there used to be a lot of Hollywood movies located in Latin America. Then the, the sort of Pan-American craze passed, but it left me with a residue of curiosity about Brazil. I went there uh, for a week and gathered enough impressions that I thought I could pull this off. Uh, it's not much of it in the jungle, really. A lot of it's in the so-called Mato Grosso, which is a kind of thorny pampas, a kind of plain, really, a rolling plain uh, with with trees, but not uh, not all trees.
2: Is this meant to be, this is, I gather, more than just a novel. This is almost almost a myth, is it? isn't its it? it's a tale in a way or a fable you
0: could say Uh, my theory was that uh, having written my previous novel was a rather realistic American one about two levels of American reality and I thought I could write a swifter, more adventurous tale if I didn't know the terrain so well. So the having it in Brazil where I didn't know much enabled me to move more quickly, it seemed to me, and to impart to it a kind of fabulous, elevated tone, uh, a little like Voltaire's Candide in a way. I mean, a kind of novel or a kind of book that used to be written, uh, a moral tale, in which the characters are real enough to the author but aren't maybe real the same way that, say, Harry Angstrom is real.
2: If we are familiar with the Tristan and Isolde story, are we familiar with this book? You have a good start at it, although, of course, Tristan and
0: in the legend, uh, died fairly young, whereas my young couple uh, mature and they reach middle age. I don't want to give away all the turns of the plot, but you uh, see them through quite a few phases. It almost becomes the history of a marriage, and especially a violent and strange marriage, but a marriage nevertheless.
2: Now, marriage brings us back to turf you're
0: familiar with. Uh, I have written about marriage, you're right, and the marriages I've written about have tended to be unhappy ones, whereas this, in a way, is a happy marriage, or at least the uh, the love between the two uh, principles remains uh, remains fairly high, and that's nice. And it's a sort of a happy book, uh, in a way. Is it the
2: kind of book you felt like you had to write?
0: I as I say I wanted to change. I one always like as in business you can't stand pat. You have to uh move on and try something new and it was certainly the kind of change of pace uh, I wanted to write. Uh I thought it would be shorter than it is. It turned out to be 260 pages. I'd visualize something about 200 Really almost a novella, quick and slim. I love other people's slim books, and it's a frustration to me that I haven't been able to write too many slim ones lately of my own. My books seem to get fatter. Maybe it's a part of the aging process. I don't know. <laughs> I think all of us gets a little bit fatter. That's the right. <laughs> uh, my, books, my books and my belt both say the same uh, thing. Uh, the hero is, a uh, when you first see him, is a 19-year-old black slum boy from Rio called Tristão. Tristão is a real Brazilian name. I didn't make that up. I mean, actually, the Brazilian names are quite c- colorful, a lot of classic names. Euclides is another name. Dananziano is another name in the book. That part of it was fun. He sees on the beach, which is a very mixed... Uh, Racially a beach, a Copacabana. I verified that with my own, my own beach going when I was there. He sees a, a white girl a little back from the crowd and she turns out to be Isabel Lamy, an 18 year old virgin and daughter of one of the governmental elite. Uh, nevertheless, uh, since they're all in bathing suits and in a sense equal in the flesh, uh, he goes up to her and they begin. And she impulsively invites him back to their apartment, and she they they make love. And her family does not, as you might imagine, approve. Even though Brazil is in some ways progressive racially, it's not so progressive racially that uh, the father and the uncle are not indignant. And in a sense, then the couple is chaste. By the disapproval across Brazil. Uh, they go to Brasilia, he's a gold miner for a while, uh, she becomes a prostitute to support them in the, the gold mining territory and they wind up in the extremity of Brazil where some magic takes place there among Indians in the end. Uh, the book moves backward in a way through, through Brazilian history until you get to the Indians who were there before the Portuguese came.
2: I, I am told. I, I haven't gotten that far in the book yet, but I'm told that once I get to that magic part, that that the book almost becomes a whole different kind of story. That you really, really bring us into that realm with an authority not common in novels.
0: Well, I'm glad you've heard that. And I hope it's, <laughs> I hope it's true. Uh, there is a switch later on. Uh, I'd rather not talk about it over the air, although a number of the reviews have mentioned it. Reviewers, in fact, have no shame at all. They will give away every precious little twist and turn and surprise ending you've cooked up. But, uh, yes, there's a switch, a magical act. They become each different, uh, but remain f- fond of each other uh, and enter the middle class, uh, you could say. Well, yes, it's, you could say it. It's the truth. Uh, so, yeah, there's there's a few surprises. Uh, when you write in an exotic setting like this, in a way, magic is easier to pull off than if it's in the United States, where you can look around you and see that not much magic takes place. But in an imaginary Brazil, who knows what goes on?
2: How well must you know your characters before you begin writing, or can you learn about them? as we learn about them. You do learn about
0: them to an extent. You should have a vision, a pretty clear vision, and that you want to be that person. Uh, that's how I began with Rabbit, Rabbit Angstrom. I just had not been a very good basketball player in high school, but I admired those who were. I noticed that uh, they didn't have very happy often post high school careers and so but i wanted to kind of know what it felt like to be, have been a star so i wrote about a star and uh, in a way i wanted to know what it felt like to be a 19 year old uh, poor black in brazil so they kind of grow on you yes and there are a few surprises sometimes the minor characters surprise you too in general i unlike some authors know where I'm headed. I generally know the ending I'm aiming at because I figure once the book is done, the reader should have a sense of somebody's been in charge here and that the whole book uh, is a unit. Some writers I read don't know where they're going and just start out in faith. But we all have some. It's a plunge for all of us to a degree. We don't quite know what's going to happen.
2: If you have a pretty good idea, though, in mind of how it's going to end, or maybe even if you have a definite idea of how it's going to end, how do you discipline yourself so as not to foreshadow that to too great a degree as we're reading, because we want to be surprised when a book
0: ends. And I want you to be surprised. Uh, indeed, I do. Well, you may not always succeed, and, uh, and sometimes the ending, when you arrive at it, is a little flat, because so much else has happened you didn't foresee. But in general, I try to be in control with sort of loose reins, you know, not tight reins. I don't want to pull back the horse of inspiration so that he can't take a step, but... Uh, Writing a book is not just inspiration; it's also a kind of constructive engineering task. uh, So that no, I I don't think it gets too much out of out of control. Uh, I wanted this book to have uh, thirty chapters, and uh, I noticed I had to speed up after a while because at the rate I was going, it would have been sixty chapters. So (laughs) you have to you have to exercise a certain um, disciplinary facility here.
2: Does the writing of books become easier with each successive book?
0: Uh, not really. Uh, you gain a little expertise, but expertise in the writing business doesn't take you very far. It's not like playing the violin where you have a lot of finger skills. Uh, in a way, you're sort of starting with that blank paper every time. And also, the older you get, the more you've used up, in a way, the people and the incidents and the passions, the experiences that have meant something
2: to you. I I did wonder about, uh, uh, on that same subject, you use a metaphor early on in the book for, well, uh, his his essential part. And it occurred to me, what a great metaphor this is that you're using, but now you can't use that again because you've already used it now in Brazil. If, If And what if a writer comes up with, The the finest way to describe something. The greatest metaphor the world has ever known you can't use it more than once can you no and you can't hold back you have to give every book
0: every story uh all you've got at the time in the faith that when it's done uh, the glass will slowly fill up again I mean you'll get other things but you're right you shouldn't I shouldn't use that particular metaphor again uh, I had an interesting experience the other night I read a short story and then I read a piece of this novel and in the middle of reading the novel I realized that I had used the metaphor in the short story and in the and in the novel so so your, your memory is not perfect, but in general, of course, every book should be a clean slate uh, for you when you start. You should try to do your best by the book you're working at and then and then rest easy in the assumption
2: that you will regain some new inspiration. As you're out and about uh, on interviews and book signings, do you meet people who, who beg you? Please find a way. Do something. Find some way to bring Rabbit back. I know he's dead, but please, please, there's got to be some way. I know. Believe me, it does happen to my great surprise, even entering
0: this building here. The receptionist asked me to do something about the terrible condition in which I'd left Harry Angstrom. So I'm touched. I'm touched that he was so real to so many people. Uh, but I can't make any promises. Uh, it seems to me when we last saw him, he was very, very ill indeed, and not much of an escape hatch. Talk about magic, it would take an act of magic to bring him back in that sense. There might, however, be a way to write some more about the Angstroms as a group. Uh, I don't have to make any decision till about 1998. That's quite a ways away. I did want to to wrap up. With four volumes, uh, the, the saga, because uh, all men are mortal, why can't characters be mortal too? But uh, yes, in answer to your question, uh, I frequently meet people who want me to do something more with Rabbit Angstrom
2: you know I, I told you at the outset that it was quite an honor and a privilege to have you here today and i do mean that because uh, when i was in college uh there was uh, uh, all the, the 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 writers that we read the, the tom wolfs and the the uh, uh the uh, uh john updikes and the the cheevers and things like this i mean your your name is 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 a legend i wonder though how much sales are important to you is it important to you to be a commercial success as well as a literary success.
0: It's nice to feel you're making a living uh, at this and uh, when Couples became a bestseller in 1968 I was not displeased because it gave me some money in the bank and uh, an artist uh, should be able to use that uh, as a chance to experiment a little space, a little space from the exigencies of trying to to earn a buck. I really was a magazine writer basically I expected to support myself through selling the New Yorker six or more short stories a year. Not a tremendous program, but it took some doing. Uh, I, w- I was able to do it, but yes, I was, uh, so yes, you can't pretend you're not pleased if the books sell well. On the other hand, if you're, when you're writing and if you're thinking about sales, if you have any hope of competing with the Michael Crichtons or the Stephen Kings of the world, you're just going to kill your own, your own voice and lose the audience you do have. Uh, There's there's several ways of selling well. One is to sell a lot in the beginning, and also there's a kind of sneaky selling through time where the books retain some interest 10 to 20 years down the
2: line, and that's the kind of book I hope to write. I do wonder sometimes the, some of the names that you see on top of those bestseller lists, will those be books that will be read by my kids when they're in college? And in most cases, I have to say the answer is no. They'll be reading Updike Cheever and uh, uh, you know, Eudora Welty and, and people like that because those are the stories that are timeless, that will live on. They're classics.
0: That's nice to think. And it's a sobering experience to look at the bestseller lists of, say, 1940, and you hardly know a name on it. It fades pretty fast, that kind of bestseller success. Uh, a book, to be really good, shouldn't be an easy read. You know, there should be something in it to make you stop and think. It might even be a little puzzling. Uh, and None of these quali- qual- qualities are quite what the, the bestseller buyer wants. So you have to be patient and hopeful. It's a pleasure uh, to be allowed to talk about your book on the air, but there is a way in which you wish you could let the book speak for itself, you know, because everything I say may be only half true, even though I'm an author. One of the curious truths is that an author is not really necessarily an expert on his own book. Uh, What you thought you were putting into it and what the reader gets out of it are not the same thing often.
2: But you have to write the book that pleases you, and if it pleases the rest of us, so much the better. Isn't that true?
0: You have to please yourself as a starter and you way you have to excite and challenge yourself too so the book should be something of a surprise as you write it uh, in the hope that it will also be a surprise to the to the reader you're right you are your own first reader uh, and best reader and if it doesn't please you uh, go back and begin again
1: john updike died in 2009 just weeks before his 77th birthday If you liked today's episode, please subscribe to Now I've Heard Everything in your favorite podcast app. We're on iHeart, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and several other major platforms. And I post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a former Hollywood stunt driver whose story is unusual for two main reasons. One, she's a woman. And two, her early training for the job was being a getaway driver for the mob. My 1998 interview with former teenage model, mob wife, and stunt driver Georgia Durani. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson.